0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 22, recorded on October 8th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I don't know if you were glued to your computer screen this week, but in case you missed it, Google had some new announcements. Yeah, they've announced loads
1: of new expensive hardware that I'm never going to buy.
0: I suppose it's not on my purchase list either, not at the moment. I could come back and look at some of these things in the future, but uh, the main pieces of hardware, the Pixel 2 and the Pixel 2 XL, are not necessarily calling to me, but they seem like pretty competitive upgrades for people that are looking for that Google-like phone experience. Yeah, they look good, front-facing speakers and Mm -hmm. uh, nice display, nice
1: specs and everything, USB-C, but then what no no headphone jack yep yep
0: (sighs) Welcome to the No Headphone Jack Reality. And uh, I think the XL looks a little better than the regular Pixel 2. You're going to have 64 and 128 gigabyte options. Both will ship with 4 gigs of RAM. And this is interesting. Get ready for this, iPhone users. The XL and the regular Pixel have the same camera processor and speaker specs. (gasps) Yeah, it's a 12.2 megapixel rear camera with autofocus, with a laser to assist in autofocus. And they have something that sounds... Really fancy. And both both the front and the rear cameras have this. They have side-by-side pixel technology. Yeah. Are you ready for this? So instead of needing two camera lenses, the new Pixel phones, because the camera image sensor has pixels that are side-by-side, in fact, just mere microns apart, my friends, that they can get the two-lens setup that you have in the iPhone X and the iPhone 8 Plus in a one-lens camera. As usual... Google, a software company, I suppose you would say, have
1: decided to solve the problem with software instead of hardware.
0: Right. You have to say machine learning, Joe. I don't know if you noticed, but you got to say that at least every <laughs> 35 seconds.
1: Yeah. Well, that was the the overarching theme here throughout all of the products that they announced, is that they're packed full of machine
0: learning. Lots of machine learning, (laughs) yes. And AI on top of machine learning, (laughs) which is just, it gets a little old after a bit. But I did some digging, and I think legitimately you can call this stuff machine learning. They are looking at the scene in the imagery and using machine learning to determine what should be in focus and what should be in the background. And by doing this, they can derive what they call portrait mode. And they can make some really impressive images from some really shallow glass and... I have to give them the nod. They seem to have the best camera setup in the 2017 smartphone line right now. Yeah, maybe.
1: But just those prices, if you want to pay that much for a phone, buy an iPhone, surely. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe yeah, the so. whole point
0: of Android is it's cheaper. That's always been the case. There's got to be some folks out there, Joe, that want that pure Android experience. And that's what the Pixel brings. It's more of a Google phone than it really is even an Android phone. It's the Google phone now. But like both of you and I said, I'm skipping this one for now. The Pixel 2, while it looks good, I think the action's going to be in the Pixel 3. Google recently hired thousands of engineers from HTC. They're incorporating them into the Android team. And I think a lot of that skill is going to land in the Pixel 3. But for those of you that are looking to buy the Pixel 2, the 64 gigabyte version will cost you 650 US greenbacks right now, while the Pixel 2 XL, 64 gig, will cost 850 US greenbacks.
1: And no headphone jack. I hate to say it again, but it's this is big. Last time with the Pixel, they made a big thing about, we've got a headphone jack, whereas now they're just giving in. And if the next Samsung phone, the next generation, doesn't come with a headphone jack, then it's finished. And and that, to me, I sound like some sort of old Luddite or something, but it's, you know, I'm a person who uses Bluetooth constantly. But just the other day, both my Bluetooth uh, adapters died and I had to plug my headphones in like a caveman. Now, I'm not going to do that with a dongle because I can't find my dongle. Where's it gone? Whereas you've always got that option. And I just, it really, really annoys me and frustrates me that we've had to move this way, but that's the way we're going. And they've got their own answer to AirPods now, aren't they? Pixel Buds.
0: Yeah, the Pixel Buds. Not a big fan of the name and not a big fan of the fact that it feels like a derivative Apple product. It feels like they're just copying the AirPods and they're just checking off a box. They are integrating something, though, that I don't think the AirPods are going to have anytime soon, and that's Google Translate real-time during conversations in your headphones. That is a neat feature, but I have to imagine it's only going to work when you have great connectivity and not a lot of background noise. And for the trade-off of having a wire and all of the other kind of compromises you make with the Pixel Pods, eh, we'll see. Or I'm sorry, the Pixel Buds. Don't call them the Pixel Pods. They're the Pixel Buds.
1: Yeah, it's the Babel Fish yes. come to life. It's
0: kind of neat. That feels like Star Trek.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool, but it's only going to be available on the Pixel for now. So we'll have to see if that goes to other phones.
0: Did you see Google Clips, the camera that is trained to capture soundless videos? No sound on the videos, and it recognizes pets and other quote-unquote interesting moments in your life. So you put it off on the shelf, just forget that the Google camera is even there, pay no attention, and whenever Google deems that you're doing something interesting, it takes a picture. Or actually, I'm sorry, a video.
1: Yeah, that's not creepy at all, is it?
0: (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Okay, and then we're going to move on, but... Worth noting, the new Pixelbook starts at 1000 U.S. greenbacks, goes up to $1,700, and when you do that, you get 512 gigabytes of NVMe storage, you get a seventh-generation i7 processor, you get the 12.3-inch high-resolution screen, and Google builds it as the first laptop that has Google Assistant built into it. Well, two things jump out at me. One, why
1: would you need that much storage in a Chromebook? Um, I suppose we'll get to that in a second. And secondly, look at this thing. It looks very old-fashioned with these giant bezels compared to an XPS or whatever. It just looks Mm. old-school.
0: Yeah, you're right. It does look old-school. That is quite a thick bezel around it. It's got a keyboard that looks sort of old-school as well. The whole design is a little outdated. But I would say that's true for the Pixels. I think Google this time around has gone for functionality more so than design. At $1,000, with Google Assistant built-in, i7 processor... And for another $100, you can get their pen, which has been co-developed with Wacom. Maybe as a niche product, I could see this being successful. But Joe, I'm not particularly optimistic about the chances of any of these products announced. The Pixel, the Pixel AirPod knockoff, the HomePod knockoffs, the Pixel Book, none of it is... Really competitive, and I I guess kind of this time around, it feels like Google sort of just checked everything off. We've revved everything, but none of it really is really compelling to me personally. Well, the only thing that's innovative
1: is the Clips camera, and that is just creepy. So, yeah, Amazon has got the Echo line sewn up, and and Apple's having their go at it. So I just can't see the Google Home Mini and Max doing particularly well, and this camera thing. Yes, it's innovative, but it's just creepy. So, yeah, and and the phones as well, it's niche. The kind of person who wants a pure Android experience and is willing to pay that much for it, I think is, is just niche. People want a Samsung phone or they want an iPhone. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, not, um, not particularly confident. But one thing I became aware of this week is... C-R-O-S-V-M? cross I VM? I don't know how you pronounce it, but it is... Pro's VM? Yeah, maybe. It's basically VMs in Chrome OS. Yeah. So you can potentially, if you know what you're doing, run virtual machines of proper Linux on there, which suddenly makes it far more attractive for developers. But then again, I don't know. Do you really want to spend $1,000 on a machine that the only way to run proper Linux on it is in a VM and if you want to use it for its proper purpose, it's basically a web browser. I mean, I know it's a little bit more than a web browser these days, but it's still fundamentally a web browser, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and but that could also be its appeal. The simplicity, the utilitarianness of it, the appliance aspect of it. Oh, and by the way, if you need to use some VMs, it can do that too. So this uh, Crows VM or CROS VM, it is essentially KVM, but it's the Chrome OS version of KVM. And uh, it is focused on... Hypervirtualization, hyper which doesn't go through the entire hardware stack and emulate it. So it doesn't try to pretend like a disk controller. It doesn't try to pretend like a network controller. It doesn't try to pretend like it has its own dedicated CPU. It's hyper-virtualized. The drivers are aware that they're in a VM, and they pass directly through the virtualizer to the host operating system high-performant virtualization here. And that is the exact kind of thing you would want on a Pixelbook. So now you start taking that higher-end storage of the $1,700 Pixelbook with the 512 gig NVMe, and you combine it with Crow's VM and the possibility of running an Ubuntu or Fedora or CentOS machine on top of a Chromebook, it starts to become a more useful laptop, and that price point is easier to justify.
1: Easier, but still, I think if it was kind of like, 700 800 then it would be a much easier sell
0: yeah slam dunk <laughs> that's what it would be it would be a slam dunk and at this it's it's really you taking a bet on the google ecosystem still yeah
1: i'd, I'd want to see how it does but it's been a long time since they had a high-end Chromebook, and that can't have done well otherwise they would have kept doing it so they've decided to have another bash at it but right mm, not yeah. hugely confident for them i must say
0: You and I have said these are niche products, nobody wants these. Of course, the irony is our audience probably is interested in the Pixel phone. Not so sure about the Pixel book, but definitely the Pixel phone. And if they're not interested in the Pixel phone, they might be interested in flashing their own ROMs or something like Sailfish X. Yeah,
1: so we talked about this when it was announced, and now it is available to pre-order, I suppose you would say. They'll take your money at this point. So if you've got an Xperia X phone, which I looked into, you can get a, a, one in decent condition for £150, uh, so that's not too bad. Then you can buy the Selfish ROM from Yoda and flash it, and that is coming in a couple of days, the download for it. So if you're interested in it, now is the time to uh, spend your money.
0: Yeah, and they've expanded support for installation to Windows host systems, so if you run Windows and were concerned about having to load Linux to get Selfish X installed on your Sony Xperia X, well, guess what? now they will just emulate a Linux environment on your Windows host and do it for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can't see it being much more than ADB and fast Boot, but what do I know? Yeah,
0: well, it does require Java. I know
1: that. Yeah, I don't see why it would need Java, but there we go. I'm, I'm tempted. The fact that it's only 150 quid for the phone and the fact that there's a paranoid Android ROM available for it, then it makes me think maybe if, if it had mainline lineage support, so I knew that I could flash that on it uh, afterwards. yeah, yeah.
0: That would be the then, sweet spot
1: yeah but it's not on that list unfortunately so uh it's I, I don't know what's going on with yola really whether this is a last ditch attempt to make some money and pay back the people who bought the tablet on the on the kickstarter or whatever it was it just I, I don't know, I haven't seen as many people interested in this as I thought I would, put it that way, since it was announced.
0: Really? I kind of feel like, okay, you're right, the interest isn't as high as it should be, but I have had a couple of conversations with people that have been like, well, I, I'm i going to just pay it and just do it. i got a fun development, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, no, no big deal, I'll just give it a go. Like, for them, I think that price point is just... It's not too expensive that they're willing to sort of kick that company some money and let them continue development and get a ROM in 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 exchange. And I feel like a lot of people are comfortable with that. And I'm only saying that based on anecdotal conversations I've had with maybe three people. So take it for a grain of salt. But the three people I've talked to, Joe, that are Sailfish users seem to be on board with it.
1: Yeah, I suppose at $60 or 50 euros, it's not too bad. But...
0: Yeah, and by talking to those three Sailfish owners I, or users, I believe I have now surveyed uh, 60% of the entire Sailfish market. <laughs> oh. Maybe we're all just waiting for sci fi to save us. Is that how you say it? Sci-5? Yes, yeah, Sci-5, I think is how you pronounce
1: it. That is a company who is just about to release the first 64-bit system on a chip based on the RISC-V architecture, which is completely open source. It is the architecture that ARM should be, as far as I'm concerned. It can run completely free software. And this SRC is designed to run Linux out of the box, and having four 1.5 gigahertz cores, Seems like a pretty good start to me, and being 64-bit as well. So this is not consumer-ready at this point. This is released to manufacturers, and it's quite expensive to buy it, to develop for it. But I've been watching this story for a couple of years now develop because it is, to me, very important that we have something that can run free software top to bottom. And obviously, we've talked about Purism, what they're trying to do, and I get the feeling that they'll be back in the news next week when they uh, reach their 1.5 million. It's, it's surely the aspiration of anybody in our community is to run hardware that can run purely free software. And you have to start at the very lowest level. And that is the processor, the CPU. And that is what risk five is
0: all about. Absolutely. And so these are purpose-built, application-customizable CPUs. And that's what Linux is, too. Linux can be purpose-built, customized for a singular application to really optimize that workload. And that's why Linux and Android have been massively successful in the last few years. And so now we have a RISC-V processor built around that same principle. In fact, the company promotes this as optimized for Linux. Welcome to 2017 everybody where a CPU manufacturer is advertising to other hardware manufacturers they build a CPU optimized to run Linux.
1: Yeah, this is the start of the dream as far as I'm concerned. Whether that dream is going to pan out or not, I really don't know, but it's something that you don't see that much chatter about. And and people seem to be pinning their hopes on x86 and ARM, and it's early days. It's very early days for RISC-V, but we need things like this to happen. We need to have 64-bit quad-core and potentially octa-core plus and we need to see the performance increase and we need to see development in this area because i as far as i'm concerned this is the only hope for a totally free software stack um, when it comes to hardware
0: yeah and the performance seems to be there being able to tailor it for specific applications is a huge benefit and it's unburdened with all the legacy stuff that x86 has so also i am very optimistic about it so you guys should check it out sci5 and we'll have the links in the show notes linuxactionnews.com slash 22 go give it a read because it looks like they're working on something pretty cool and i would bet you that down the road future boxes that you have in your house could have a cpu very much like this inside them LAS.ting.com. le You go there, you get $25 off a device or $25 in service credit. I would check their BYOD page because they have a CDMA and a GSM network, so you probably have a device you can bring. But this is what's great about Ting. It's pay for what you use mobile. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, you add them all up, whatever you use, that's what you pay for. Oh, you spent the whole month on Wi-Fi? Then you're not paying for data. You use Telegram or WhatsApp, then you don't pay for text messages. It's great. LAS.ting.com. In fact, check out their blog. Do me a favor. Go to last.ting.com, then go to their blog because they're doing giveaways constantly. I think this recently have like a two gigabyte data giveaway. So check that out on their blog. It's mobile that really makes sense with no contracts, no early termination fees, a great dashboard, and radically different customer service. They're owned by two cows. If you're familiar with two cows, then you know what I'm talking about. It's truly mobile that's different. It's how the whole industry would do it today if they were forced to restart. Last.ting.com.
1: Okay, let's talk about the poster child for FOSS in government, and that is Munich. It's been a story that's rumbled on for about 10 years, I think. They're moving over to an Ubuntu-based distribution and moving the applications over first, and then the government changed, and they were thinking about rolling back. Well, it looks like that has started. It looks like they've started to move back to Exchange, so Colab is not going to be used anymore anymore. And so mail and calendaring is going back to evil MS.
0: Yeah, it actually stings because they're moving away from Colab to me. So here's the direct quote, and uh, it hurts because it's from a city council member. It says, the city will use Microsoft Exchange. It will be used for email, calendar, so Collab will not be used anymore hard and just cold like that. And out of all of it, for some reason, that's what upsets me the most. Because I feel like they obviously botched the Linux desktop rollout. They were trying to make an old version of OpenOffice that they had patched work. They were trying to make an old version of Linux that they had customized work for them as some sort of desktop-specific distro. Like, they were doing everything wrong. They were the case study in how not to switch to Linux. And in some way, that's actually valuable for all of us. We can look at Munich and say, okay, this is how you You don't do it. But the one area felt like they were doing things right was with collaboration software and specifically using Colab. Uh, and, And to see them switching to Microsoft Exchange here, it's a bigger deal than it seems on its face because it either means they're going all in on hosting or they're going all in on Active Directory. Either way, fundamental shifts, and it's sort of disappointing to see it, I admit.
1: Yeah. The thing is that a lot of people in our community, or almost everyone, just thinks it's a universally bad thing that they would go back to Microsoft products. Whereas to me, I try and be a bit more pragmatic about it. And I would say that they have the responsibility to look at the figures here. Is it going to cost them less to pay for Microsoft than it would to, to go for some sort of open source solution? And I would much prefer them to go open source, but if it's going to cost them less ultimately, then I kind of feel like they have the responsibility to do that. That said, if they'd done it properly in the first place and just paid Red Hat to come in and give them proper support, then that would have probably worked out cheaper. I don't know. Who who knows? But trying to roll their own solution and uh, no one knowing exactly what was going on, and as you say, patching these ancient versions of uh, Ubuntu and, and OpenOffice and stuff, that was just never going to be the right solution. And nothing to do with Microsoft opening up their headquarters, their German headquarters um, in Munich or anything. It just, it's all a very disappointing story. But yeah, I think you've picked up on the silver lining that, yeah, at least we can learn what not to do now.
0: That is really what to take away from it. To me, it seems like the cost of retraining the users was a obstacle that they could never completely get over. And then the requirement of time and development energy and cost to keep their Limux distribution current, it appears that they essentially gave up on that effort around 2013. They just decided it was too much work to keep it up to date. It's it, We're essentially writing our own operating system at this point. And then they tried to ride that 2013 distro out as long as possible. And, and then it got to a point where people just had to ask the question, well, look at Windows 10 and look at this bastardized Linux distribution from 2013. They're not competitive. We should just go this route. We avoid the retraining cost. We're already switching to Microsoft Exchange, so it's just obvious to make this switch. And it all the rest of it clicks into place. I think in the ashes of this entire experiment, what we can hope is they remain on open standard formats, like ODF, and they use systems that are available to the public even after commercial agreements end. That's the best we can hope for, I think.
1: Yeah, except that it'll be DocX or whatever the new one is. I, I, I can't see them sticking with the open standards because unless they make the effort to make sure that it saves in those formats by default, it, it's just not going to happen. And you can see that being an easy thing to forget when you set up a, a machine.
0: It does feel like, though, that is the new battle. And if there's any advocates in there for open standards and open formats, that is the button to start pushing. Because otherwise, you're going to have companies like Oracle roll in and just say, stop using open source altogether.
1: Yeah, somehow I think you might be a bit riled up about this one, being that Oracle have advised the White House not to use FOSS.
0: Yeah, this is after the U.S. digital service, USDs and 18F had asked for comments from the private sector on how to modernize the federal government's security infrastructure. And lots of companies have submitted recommendations, including Adobe and Microsoft and just about every other company you could think of. And all of them are pretty standard. In fact, I have to really give some serious credit to Microsoft for writing one of the most concise... And one of the most open, they just posted it as a gist instead of like a PDF. And it didn't really push any Microsoft goals. In in contrast, Google had a very Google-centric proposal, which literally suggested the entire federal government should switch over to cloud computing and just trust Google for everything. Yeah, funny that, yeah. (laughs) So Oracle, though, Oracle really stepped on it because... Oracle is offended. Oracle is offended by the federal government's use of open source and the false narratives that they have landed on. In fact, they say just that. This is a direct quote from Oracle's submission. False narrative. The government should attempt to emulate fast-paced innovation of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is comprised of IT vendors, most of which fail. The USG is not a technology vendor, nor is it a startup. Under no circumstances should the USG attempt to become a technology vendor. And as you can imagine, that eventually de-escalates into don't use open source, don't use open standards, don't use open data. All of these things are bad. In fact, Oracle even attempts to make the case and attempts to argue that open source is seeing a decline in the private sector and then goes to blame the Equifax breach on Apache and uses that as an example of why the federal government shouldn't use open source software.
1: Yeah, that is just absolutely outrageous that they would do that, because that was unpatched open source software. So that's got nothing to do with the fact that it was open source. But to be fair to them, they do kind of pepper it with a few facts. And I think that that first one about Silicon Valley being comprised of IT vendors, most of which fail, is actually true, isn't it? Yeah, it does resonate a bit true, you're right. But they kind of paper it with a few facts, and then just the rest of it is just nonsense, just designed to, well, it's it's
0: kind of FUD, really, isn't it? It's classic FUD. It is. In fact, it says that if the government were to mandate open source technology preferences, it would be a significant de-incentive to conducting business with the USG. Oracle is trying to tell them that if they mandate open source, businesses that want to make money won't work with them. What? <laughs> Maybe they should tell that to Red Hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it seems It just bitter. doesn't
1: make any sense. I mean, okay, there are some legacy companies like Oracle who won't be interested, but
0: you know, that's their problem. A lot of this Joe to me comes across as bitterness. Oracle was involved with the rollout of healthcare.gov, and the failure of healthcare.gov was pinned predominantly on Oracle software. And the things that sprung out from that failure, like the USG and 18F, are sort of thorns in Oracle's side because they've they've involved bringing in a lot of Silicon Valley people that have new modern ideas about the way to do business. And Oracle doesn't like that very much.
1: Well, they're very much old world, aren't they? It's not a surprise that they're not interested in these new ways of doing things because they just have this old fashioned view that things should be proprietary and locked down and these huge contracts and huge bloated bits of software that they have complete control over and all the standards are theirs so it's no wonder that these new agile silicon valley types come in and want to use as much open source as possible because let's face it from a business point of view it makes a lot of sense to use open source i mean you know for example crypto there's so much great open source crypto, why on earth would you write your own paying engineers to write and maintain your own when you can just use open source? And right. you can just pull in all these open source libraries that
0: make writing of your own software way cheaper. Yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> Oracle kind of feels like a dying breed here of, a, of an older technology, Silicon Valley era, when uh, things were just different software was delivered differently, software was created differently, the investment in to create that software was completely different, and now a transition is taking place. And the federal government finds themselves sort of in the middle of this transition. What you really need, Joe, is a way to give the power to the people, like a, like a good Bitcoin fork can do.
1: <laughs> oh man, yet another. <laughs> yet another. Bitcoin gold this time. And I don't know, I don't know how seriously to take this one. I think it's worth discussing in a kind of broader sense of this is the second one and there's another one pending in November. Uh, and you've just ended up with more and more forks of Bitcoin and these hard forks that mean that you can use your old Bitcoin, you know, however many Bitcoin you had before, you've now got instantly that many Bitcoin gold or Bitcoin cash. But it just, it seems to me that the more forks we have here, the more legitimacy the original has in a weird way because it's you've got all this fragmentation happening with the rest of it, but then the old-fashioned original Bitcoin just keeps chugging along and going, well, whatever, guys, we're, yeah.
0: we're worth yeah. a bunch. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I look at this and I think maybe what we're seeing is a shift, actually. Nothing really new, but a shift. So when years ago, when Bitcoin was the hot topic, just proper Bitcoin, you had... Litecoin and Dogecoin and a lot of other coins. And now what we seem to be having is forks of Bitcoin. So it's sort of the same thing, a bunch of competing cryptocurrencies, but now we're all just forking Bitcoin instead. And um, I'm kind of getting sick and tired of it and I'm finding it hard to track. However, that said, Bitcoin gold has one thing about it that I like. It's a memory hard algorithm. It's more like Ethereum or Litecoin in that it can be actually computed by average, everyday GPUs. And the best part about Bitcoin for me was when I was all in on mining. I had Linux rigs up the wazoo mining coins. I was heating my studio using machines. It was the most fun I had with Bitcoin was when I could actually mine. Plus, then you feel like you're participating in the swarm by authorizing and confirming transactions. You feel like you're actually participating. And that's what Bitcoin Gold is going for. That's what Litecoin is going for. They're they're using these algorithms or they're using these math problems that are memory hard, that work better for hardware that the average folk have, and it's going to be fun. Now, I I kind of see this shaking out, though, in a way where you can use all these... Bitcoin derivatives to generate some revenue, but really the money's going to be made in selling them to buy actual Bitcoin proper.
1: Well, yeah, when I got into mining for a brief period, when I had a reasonable AMD card, that's what everyone was doing. They would mine Doge or they'd mine Litecoin specifically to then trade that for Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin is the original, it's the the Coke or the Pepsi or whatever, you know, it it is the original, the name, you know, and Mm -hmm. So all these other ones, maybe they have hopes of becoming more valuable, but if they do, it's just dreaming because Bitcoin is just going to be the one that makes the money. And I just don't see the point of forking it to make it easier to mine, because why not just mine Litecoin in that case? You know, if you want something that's like script-based and therefore can be mined on a GPU still, rather than read these ridiculous expensive ASICs, then just mine them. And, And the thing is that one of the key people behind Bitcoin Gold is the CEO of Lightning ASIC, who is a company that just, oh, they just happen to sell the ASIC that is perfect for this. So it just feels like a cash grab and just more of this Ponzi scheme style to me.
0: Right. It's a little concerning. Each time they launch a new fork, it just feels like another way to earn a quick buck and then sell it and actually buy real Bitcoin or trade it for something else. And it's this perfect... Every time one ride ends, be it Litecoin or whatever, Bitcoin fork, you just launch another one. And as long as you have a good justification and there's a new fancy shining technology to try out, you get enough suckers on board. You, you it, it spikes, you make, you make a bunch of money, you sell, and then you just do the next thing. And it, it is starting to feel a bit of it like a scam over and over and over again. Yep, it is. The one thing I will say about Bitcoin gold that seems a little strange, and I can can see both the positives and the negatives, but it is going to absolutely be confusing, is they're using the same address for Bitcoin and for Bitcoin gold. And um, you already have some reports when this has happened with other forks where people accidentally send Bitcoin to a Bitcoin derivative and they just lose it forever. It's just gone or vice versa because the address spaces are exactly the same. They look like the same scheme. Yeah, but they are planning to sort that
1: out, but not for launch, mm-hmm. which doesn't make any sense. I know. Either. That's a kind of a red flag as well. I
0: agree. That does seem like a red flag. So the whole thing's very strange. And yet it is the cross that we must bear, Joe. Hashtag first world problems. Very much so, yes. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash 22 to get all of the show notes and stories that we mentioned this week, like I probably said earlier. And check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes.
1: Yeah, and go to linuxactionnews.com
0: slash contact for ways to get in touch. And please consider supporting the entire network and future projects mm-hmm. at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with
1: our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Jai
0: Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.